0: On, can you hear me? Thank you. Okay. Well, good morning. morning <laughs> um, we're going to do something a little bit different today, in terms of a message. Uh. uh it's going to be a bit of a postcard, but there's also a sermon attached to it, maybe even a bit of lecturing, <laughs> I mean in the good way, teaching, not, not lecturing, telling you what you did wrong. Um, it's different, <laughs> and I trust that uh, most of all that uh, this will be a, give you some new insights based on, on God's word. Let's pray for a second here. Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for being in our midst. Your word says where two or three are gathered together that you are here, and we trust and believe that you are here. And Lord, I pray that your, um, your message would go forth, uh, that you would just speak to every heart here, every person here, every mind, and uh, just uh, answer them where they are in need, Encourage them where they need encouragement and uh, and uplift all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As most of you know, I've had the opportunity, the blessing, the privilege to travel twice now to Israel, first in 2017 and then again this past June. It's been an absolutely transformative experience. I think what impacted me the most was visiting the excavated ruins of Magdala, the town of Magdala, not just because I did not expect to see anything like it, but also because it fueled both my curiosity to know know more and my imagination. So what I want to share with you briefly this morning are some of my photos and uh, maybe a video or two (laughs) um, of uh, Magdala. And to use that as a springboard for sharing what i 've learned since then, in particular about magdala 's most famous resident, Mary Magdalene, and in general, about jesus radically countercultural interactions with women. And I should mention too, that most of what i 'm sharing is based on a book i 'm writing about my experiences to israel so you 're getting a bit of a preview, I suppose, of, uh, uh, of what i've uh, Seen and learned. So just to be, just to begin, to give you show, show you a little bit of a context here. The Sea of Galilee is actually a very small body of water, and uh, you can see at the top of the screen near the top Capernaum. That was Jesus's base. His his he even calls it his hometown when he was ministering in the Galilee. And just down the coast, you see uh, Magdala. Uh, the name beneath it, Terrace, that's its Greek name, which refers to the, um, uh, the, the fish industry, which I'll talk about in a minute. But um, the distances are very short. From Capernaum to Magdala is only like about 10 kilometers. That's a very small area. And in fact, that's one, one of the most interesting and uh, Things about this is that jesus 's ministry in the Galilee occurred within a very, very small area, and uh, I mean we think you know the, the world changing events that uh, that he inaugurated there, and yet it 's very, very small uh, geographically on the northwest shore of the uh, of the Sea of Galilee, so magdala in jesus 's day was unlike any other community on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was the region's economic hub as a major exporter of salt-cured fish that provided a source of revenue for the area's fishing industry. It provided some additional income, certainly for the Galilean fishermen who would become Jesus' inner circle, who Mark calls the Twelve. The town economy was built around its export industry, including boat rights, in other words, people who built boats, tent make, uh, net makers and fish packers the lake was not only the source of fish it was also the route for shipping jars of pickled fish across to the ports on the eastern shore that connected with trade routes going north and east to damascus and on into babylon and again just to uh, give you a bit of context this is uh, i took this this video when we were uh, on the Sea of Galilee, off the coast of Tiberias it 's pretty short, yeah very short <laughs> <laughs> not working no, not okay, okay, well, I can show it later if if you 're interested it's uh, it 's a magnificent place, the city of Sea of Galilee, and uh, you know people who have gone there say that uh, you know being on the lake uh, is the most profound experience it certainly was for me when you think that on this body of water Jesus walked and uh, it was on this body of water that he calmed a storm and this is uh, not finished yet oh, Anyway, <laughs> sorry okay yeah thanks yeah I got a few little glitches here but that's alright we'll get around it and um, it's a magnificent place and very profound, you know, to, um, you know, to look across. You know, and, you, and, you, and I think this is one, one thing that really impressed me was that I was looking across almost with the eyes of Jesus, you know, to the opposite shore. Jesus would have seen something very, very similar to that. So all this business activity had made Magdala a thriving, wealthy Jewish community of maybe 4,000 people. And covered by archaeologists to date are a marketplace, fish pools, four baths for ritual purification, mosaics, an elite residential area, and a wharf and harbor. And uh, the Magdalene Synagogue, that's the most amazing part. There. I, I, I took this photo from... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't actually see that, <laughs> but I took that photo from... Uh, Uh, when I was in uh, Magdala, part of the uh, presentation. Um, What archaeologists did not expect to find was in 2009, at less than about 30 meters, or about a foot below ground, were the ruins of a synagogue that the presence of early Roman pottery and stone vessels dates to the early first century. In other words, to the time of Jesus. Uh, Next one, Phil, please. I just want to give you a bit of a glimpse of um, of the sanctuary. This is the view from the back, looking forward. And then the next one from the side. And the next one, Phil, please, from the front. Now this is really interesting. I'm (laughs) sorry, for me anyway. (laughs) Um, The sanctuary was rectangular comprising about 120 square meters with bench seating and interior columns. The floor was paved with a simple black and white mosaic and the walls were frescoed with rich colors of red, yellow and blue. You'll see more of that later. Such opulence, say the site's lead archaeologist, tells us this was a community for whom walking to the temple in Jerusalem wasn't enough. They wanted more. They needed more. And then you see that odd-looking white box shape on the right there. Next one, Phil, please. That's called the Magdala Stone. Absolutely unique. More amazing, even beyond the, the discovery of the synagogue, was this uh, limestone relief with engravings on all sides, and the side that, that, that you can see in the center there is carved the uh, you know, the, the menorah, kind of like equivalent to the cross in, uh, in uh, judaism it 's the earliest known depiction of this uh, key Jewish symbol in galilee i don 't know if you can see it clearly enough, but on the right on either side are uh, columns which may represent the temple in Jerusalem. Now, archaeologists aren't entirely sure what this was used for, um, but the speculation is that this may have been a pedestal, in other words, like this on the floor, on the ground, that served as the base for perhaps a lectern from which the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, were read. Now, here's a quote. The high level of artisanship, the mosaic floor, the oldest in a synagogue, the excellent quality of the frescoes, all suggest a very affluent community. Though a small one, probably associated with a priestly family. None of the other synagogues of such an early date compare to this. And so here's how one historian described the synagogue, having been there himself. The viewer can, upon viewing the site, picture the worshippers seated on the benches around the uh, wall that, that ring the walls of the structure. One can imagine the synagogue leader standing behind the stone tablet that evidently held a stand on which the Torah scroll lay for reading. The visitor to the site can almost hear the voices of those gathered for prayer and study from 2,000 years ago, and I have no doubt no doubt at all, that one of those voices belonged to Jesus. That's one of the most amazing things when you're in Israel, to actually walk where Jesus walked, to be where he was. So, that's just by way of introduction. Such was the world of the town's most famous resident and one of the most impressive women in the Bible, Mary of Magdala, or as we know her, Mary Magdalene. All that we know about her, comes from the Gospels. And from the little that we do know, it is obvious that her faith journey with Jesus was absolutely unique. And more than that, it sheds important light on Jesus's many other female followers. So we're going to look at Luke 8, 1-3, which makes the connection between Mary, these other women, and Jesus. I'll just read that for you. After this, Jesus traveled from one place I'm sorry, from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the son of Chuza, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. The three women named here as having been cured of evil spirits and diseases by Jesus had much in common. They were women of status and wealth. They showed their gratitude by joining Jesus' entourage and by giving them their financial support. We know nothing about Susanna, but Joanna is very interesting. As this passage tells us, she was the wife of Chusa, a top official. We might say he was a CFO, chief financial officer in the court of Herod Antipas. Not Herod the Great, but one of his sons who ruled in Galilee at the time. This means that at an early date, very early date, a woman had brought the good news of Jesus Christ into the royal household. As for Mary, she seems to have needed and received the most profound healing. We don't know if she was literally in the grip of seven demons. It's more likely that Mary suffered from a seizure disorder like epilepsy or any number of mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and that people in Jesus' day, not knowing what else to blame for her conditions, attributed her maladies to demonic possession. This may help explain why Mary was so fully committed to Jesus, that from that moment on, even more so than the 12, the 12 men, she went where Jesus went. All four Gospels mention that she accompanied Jesus to Jerusalem for what would be the last time. She saw Jesus being crucified, She saw where Jesus' body had been laid and sat opposite the tomb. On the third day, she went to the tomb to anoint his body. She saw and spoke with the risen Lord, and she went and told the 11, that is the 12 minus Judas Iscariot, what she had witnessed. The Gospels name other women from Galilee who also saw these events unfold, along with many other women. Or unnamed. But this is key. Mary was the only one they all named as being there throughout. And when their names are listed, hers is always first to indicate her prominence, much like Peter is all, always named first in lists of the male disciples. Because of this, the well known author and pastor Timothy Keller says Mary became the first person in history to meet the basic biblical criteria for someone to be called a Christian. Believing that Jesus died and was raised from the dead and that he or she has had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. And this is Keller. At this moment, Mary is the only person in the world of whom these things are true. Jesus could have arranged to make anyone the first messenger. He chose her. And that means Jesus Christ specifically chose a woman, not a man. Chose a reformed mental patient, not a pillar of the community, to be the first Christian. The first Christian. So who was Mary Magdalene? This is uh, from one author, a woman, and I think uh, she captures uh, Mary well. Mary Magdalene is an older, wealthy widow who serves as Jesus' comrade, confident, and friend. That she is present and bears witness to the two most pivotal events in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, demonstrates that she is a courageous and steadfast disciple we must be mindful of the fact that during Jesus' day, it would have been socially unacceptable for a young single woman to travel around the countryside with a group of mostly men. A wealthy older widow helping to provide financial support for a group of missionaries, however, would not have been out of the question. Another scholar suggests, though, that Mary might well have never married, or have been rejected or divorced by her husband due to a mental defect, her mental defect, or demon possession issues. Either way, either way, no one disputes her single-minded and unwavering devotion to Jesus. But while Mary was an exemplary disciple, regardless of gender, male or female, Luke is telling us here, too, that this does not diminish the status of the other women who followed Jesus, both named and unnamed, whether we know anything about them or not. The fact that they supplied the, me, the movement's financial needs was essential to carrying out its mission, because how could anyone of them have earned a living while they're on the go all the time, since none of the entourage, perhaps upwards of 100 people, Think of that, a hundred people. You imagine that, you know, they, listen, you know, we, we always talk about the twelve. But it was more likely the twelve men plus an unknown number of women and maybe even children. Made up Jesus' entourage. But this does not but I'm sorry, but this financial support was not their primary assignment nor was it their assignment to be a kind of women's auxiliary. Hmm. Undertaking all the domestic chores for the group, such as preparing meals and sewing clothes, while the men did the real work of ministry. No. The takeaway is this, and this is, if there's one thing that you take away from this message, it's this. The women's top priority was exactly the same as that of the twelve. Referring to the men, Mark 3:14 and 15 says, he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Referring to the women, Luke 8, 1 to 3 says in part, the 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases and many others, in other words, many other women. The message says there were also some women in their company. In other words, what is meant for a man to follow Jesus was no different from what it meant for a woman to follow Jesus. Both are equally with Jesus. There is no man-made hierarchy and no separation of roles or division of labor based on gender. What we see in especially Luke's gospel is that Jesus is preparing both men and women to take part in his mission for when he is no longer with them. Luke also makes it clear that these women disciples were constant companions of Jesus from an early stage of the Galilean ministry. Now that's not to say that the women did not do some domestic chores as needs arose, but I'm certain the men did too. Because as followers of Jesus, everyone followed Jesus' example. As he said in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. In John 21, we know that Jesus even made breakfast. So, so there isn't that division of, of, of labor. But, and one thing too, you know, at, the, at the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, he sent out the 70 or the 72 disciples um, ahead of him as he was leaving Galilee, offering the people one last opportunity to repent and believe in the good news. I have no doubt, there is no doubt really, that that 72 comprised men and women. But if Jesus had women disciples with him virtually from the beginning, why did he not make at least one of them a member of the twelve, his inner circle? What was his reason for making it all male? That's a good question. And I agree with commentators who say, and this is a quote, that Jesus began where he was, within the strictures of Judaism as he knew it in his upbringing. His closest companions initially may have been Jews, men, and men of about his own age. He began there, but he did not stop there. The thrust was outward, increasingly inclusive and not restrictive. Even in the early stages of his mission, women were becoming deeply involved at the power center of Jesus' movement. So, another question. Why did so many women turn to Jesus so early in his public ministry? Part of the answer lies with archaeologists who have studied ancient skeletal remains they have calculated that women in Jesus' day had an average, average lifespan of only 33 years. For men, it was a little better at 37 years. Females typically entered into arranged marriages in their early teens and bore large numbers of children, primarily because most of them, sadly, died young. The infant mortality rate in Jesus' day, according to these archaeologists, what they've calculated, was 30%. In other words, 3 in 10 newborns died before the age of 1. If women lost their husbands, I mean, think of Joseph. He disappears completely from the Gospels they would have had the added burden of raising the surviving children on their own with little or no outside help. In short, they died young because they were physically and mentally shattered. They broke down. Socially, a woman was not allowed to touch any man but her husband, and only a few would talk to men outside of their families. Jewish men, I'm sure you've heard this on the other hand, prayed at every synagogue service, "'Blessed are you, O Lord,' who has not made me a woman. As well, most women had limited standing in terms of their participation in the religious life of the community, especially in the temple. Women were denied access to the centers of holiness and and were restricted to the court of the women. They may have been allowed to participate more freely in synagogue worship in Jesus' day, but that's not certain. All that's known is, is that at some point, galleries separating women from men came into existence. By the way, the separation between men and women is still in place today in one important respect in modern-day Israel. The closest that observant Jews can worship at the temple, which the Romans destroyed in the year 70, is at the Western Wall, or commonly called the Wailing Wall, which is all that's left of the temple. Now, (laughs) uh, that's uh, <laughs> I'll just show you that th- quickly. There was a video. It doesn't work properly. Yeah. Can you go back, Phil? Just to that. Yeah. This is at the Western Wall. It's an extraordinary place. Um, this is open 24 hours a day. This, was, this picture was taken about 7.30 in the evening. Um, you see those those closed umbrellas there? That's uh, it's kind of like a curtain. The men are on one side, the observant Jews, and the women are behind that. Um, and the children too, I'm sure of that. Uh, and so the men would gather, and the women too, in their own place, but the men would gather for, for prayer, for reading and studying the Torah. And uh, the women had their own separate location. So, I don't know, can you, do you have to play that video? Or do you have to go back? Or can you, just, you can't skip over it. So, okay, yeah. Yeah, the video, if you had, if you, if you cocked your head that way, you could probably see it. There you go. <laughs> anyway. You get the picture. So, but you see, so that's an example of uh, what it's still like in uh, in Jerusalem, in in, at uh, at the temple. Um, There have been efforts to change that, you know, to make it mixed, male and female, but uh, um, the the Orthodox Jews oppose that, and they have sufficient power in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, to block it. Uh, remember, there is no freedom of religion, really, in, in, Jeris- in, in Israel. It's the Jewish state. And so I'm not saying other people can't worship as they wish, but it is, but Judaism is the religion of, uh, of Israel. And so, into this, going back in time, going back to the time of Jesus, then suddenly into this world came Jesus. He spoke with authority in telling the good news of the kingdom of God. He had the power to cast out demons, calm the storms, cure every sickness and disability, and even raise the dead. He jettisoned all the rules about who or what was ritually clean or unclean and who people were allowed to touch or talk to. Jesus came announcing the genesis of a radically new family that was open to anyone who believed in him regardless of race, social status, gender, material possessions, or the lack of them, or anything else. And for all who would believe, as Paul would later declare, and thank you, Andrea, for reminding me of this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. Simply stated, Jesus violated the norms of his time in every single encounter with women in the four gospels, without exception. So it's hardly surprising then that given their miserable circumstances, and I'm quoting here, some women of Galilee found that the Jesus movement was offering a viable and attractive alternative. The message of blessing for the poor and setting captives free undoubtedly resonated with the experiences of repression that such women encountered in their lives. Only the permanent following of Jesus, I like that, the permanent following of Jesus, could provide the incentive to remake the world in ways that were different to anything that either Rome or Jerusalem might have to offer. And so as Christianity began to take root post-resurrection, the impact that this radical assault had on the Roman Empire was profound. One sociologist points out that in keeping with Jesus' special care for women, the early church stood against the legal and widely accepted practice whereby pagan families exposed unwanted female infants and deformed male infants to the elements to die or be taken away by strangers. Think of China's one-child policy. It's a similar kind of uh, idea. This, plus the many deaths of women from abortions, meant that there were substantially more males than females in the Greco-Roman world. Yet within the church, this imbalance lessened as the mortality rates among women of faith began to decline due to its condemnation of abortion and female infanticide. Another quote. Granted, this was the result of the prohibition of all infanticide, But the more favorable Christian view of women is also demonstrated in their condemnation of divorce, incest, marital infidelity, and polygamy. Christian females also were married at a substantially older age and had more choice about whom they married. As a result, the Christian women enjoyed far greater marital security and equality than did their, her pagan neighbor. In light of this dramatic reversal, thanks to Jesus, women were more likely than men to become Christians. So much so that combined with their lower mortality rates, the sex ratio imbalance began to tip the other way, creating what the sociologist calls, I love this phrasing, a surplus of women in the Christian subcultures. And this in turn, he says, was soon translated into substantially more status and power, both within the family and within the religious subculture, then was enjoyed by pagan women. There's a bit of an indication of, the, of this in, in, in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. If you look at uh, Romans 16, where he lists all the people you know, that, he, that he wants to acknowledge in his letter, about half of them are women. Now, that's not scientific, but I'm just saying that there were lots of women involved in the ministry of the church in those early days. And so finally, we're going back to Magdala, so you can get a quick look at a new Catholic church consecrated in 2014 that was built behind the site of the synagogue and looks out onto the Sea of Galilee. I had to take this from a brochure. You know, I couldn't get out on the water for that. Anyway, but that's, uh, that's the church. It's called, uh, as you can see at the top, there, Duke in Altum, which is Latin for put out into deep water. And is based on Jesus' instructions to Peter in Luke five four that resulted in a miraculous catch of fish. What's unique about this church is that it's dedicated to the women of the New Testament. With Mary Magdalene once again given priority. Um, and so here, <laughs> I was hoping to show you a bit more of the... Uh, of uh, the uh, no, that's right. That's that's not a video. Sorry, Phil. The next one, please. Yeah. This is what visitors get a glimpse of when they walk into the church. We would call it the foyer. This is called the women's atrium. Um, it's rich colors. You can go to the next slide, please. Its rich colors replicate. Yeah, that's the ceiling. Its rich colors replicate the colors of the interior of the synagogue sanctuary, what we looked at. And it's a hint of that synagogue's former beauty. Now, in this atrium, you can see a bit of this here, there are eight columns in honor of Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Susanna, Martha and Mary, Salome, the mother of James and John. Peter. This is, I guess, because of being Catholic. Peter's unnamed mother-in-law. And somebody called Maria Cleophas, traditionally known as the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. In other words, Jesus' aunt. And there's also a column for the many other women. Mentioned in Luke 8.3. And an unmarked column that I'm quoting here the church's brochure stands for women of all time who love God and live by faith. Each woman can spiritually inscribe I like that. In other words you can't scratch it on. Your name as a poignant reminder of her role in the history of humanity. I like that. And leading off from the atrium are several small chapels. Including one for Mary Magdalene. Next, please. <laughs> oh, yeah! <you> <laughs> now it runs. <laughs> Cock your head sideways, and you'll see it perfectly. Uh, yeah, there we go. I tried to do uh, you know, it's like a 360-degree turn across the. Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> across the, uh, you know, the the atrium. Anyway. Oh, we're almost there. Yeah, that's the sanctuary. <laughs> I'll tell you about the pulpit in a minute. Okay. Yeah. No, just go back one place. That's it, yeah. Um, also leading off, sorry, leading off from the atrium are several small chapels, including one, For Mary Magdalene. And it features this mosaic of Jesus casting out the seven seven demons from Mary. You see the snarling dog, I presume, representing Satan down in the corner there. This is made up of 250,000 pieces in this mosaic. And also leading off, this is this doesn't work either, I guess. um, Is the sanctuary, and that too is quite unique. No, yeah. (laughs) There's a ah, never mind. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I'll see if I can. Oh no, I do have it here. I brought a a brochure from the uh, you know of the church. That uh, might give you a better example, you know. Since we can't use the video, but this is okay. Yeah, and I'll see if I can just show you that that picture, this picture here, quickly. That is the pulpit in the church. Oh, there it is. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, can you imagine that? That's overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and. Uh, this kind of represents, you know, a fishing boat from Jesus' day. What this picture shows, what you don't see in that photo, is, um, you know, there's the mast, you know, uh, of the of the boat. There's no uh, crucifix. I've never seen that before in a Catholic church. No crucifix. What you have is a shroud. And so, as you can see there in that picture, this was just the beginning of, of Mass, I guess. Uh, that's where they, the priests stand. And I thought, When I thought of you, LP, I just thought, boy, how would you like to lead worship from a boat? <laughs> Absolutely unique and a very beautiful place. So, and then finally, and this is the last thing, downstairs is an interdenominational place of prayer called the Encounter Chapel. Its floor is made of stones found in the excavations of a road and marketplace near Magdalas Harbor. And so immediately I'm starting to imagine that, yeah, there are the stones there. Jesus walked on those stones. But what is really stunning is this painting, large painting, it depicts Luke 8, 43 to 44. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. I remember very well the first time I saw this, this painting, this mural a couple of years ago, and I'm staring, what am I looking at? And then suddenly you see the hand come out from between the legs of the men. It's a beautiful, beautiful painting. Very evocative. Anyway, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Um, I just... (sighs) One of the things that has really (laughs) impacted me uh, and being there and, and learning more and um, and the songs we 've been singing have really kind of echoed that is is who Jesus is, not just what he does or did, but who he is, the person of jesus and what i 've come to realize is that uh, yes, he loves everyone, no more, no less. We are all equally loved by Jesus. But he had a special heart and a special concern for the marginalized, the outcast, the poor, the sick. And because of their societal condition, a special care and uh, love for women comes through very, very clearly. And um, I suppose if there's a takeaway, that's it, really, really. Uh, I'm not saying he loves men any less or, any, or anything like that or loves women more than men. Of course not. But he saw the needs of the people around him and he responded to those needs, everyone's needs. But he certainly had a special and deep compassion for women. And... Uh, I trust that this has has come through. And the lovely thing about this, I'm not just offering my opinions here. I am to some extent, but because I research this, because I'm writing about this, a lot of this is other people's uh, uh, observations and opinions. And it is biblical. I have no doubt about that at all. And so we can trust in that. So who is Jesus to you? I I really, really pray that uh, you'd become more aware or we could all become more aware of the person, the compassion the heart of Jesus let's pray Father, thank you thank you for uh, thank you for your son Jesus thank you that as we've already sung how he loves us, loves us all. We thank you for his heart, for those who were less or lesser in the sight of their fellow uh, human beings in his day and in our day. We thank you for how he reached out in a very special way and even uh, to, to those people and how he even chose to live among them. He did not live in Magdala, which was a wealthy community. He lived in, he, he lived in a dump called Capernaum. But that's who our Lord is. And we thank you for him. Uh, may we become more like Jesus. May we too have that burden, that heart, that compassion. For the least of these in our lives and in our midst, those to whom this church, we as a church minister to, uh, may we not walk past them, but love them as Jesus loved them. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. And may we be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are the word at the beginning.